this series is all about a conflict at the highest level between the spirit of God and the spirit of the world. Two spirits battling it out, battle royale. And we do believe that there's victory in the cross. And so the spirit of God has already overcome the spirit of the world in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. But there's still this physical manifestation of that battle happening on a daily in our lives. And you, can, you don't have to look far to see it. And so Paul the apostle was somebody that God ordained for the purpose of planting the New Testament church after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Not only planting the church, but building the church up in their, in their faith and helping equip them to know how to live in a dark, fallen world where the spirit of the world has great influence. And ultimately how to be an influence in that place. And he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophies, which we talked about in week two, which depends on human, tra human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. If you'll look at this graphic right behind me, it summarizes and illustrates kind of the idea behind this series, which is that there's a spiritual world that influences a philosophical world and a philosophical and spiritual world then influence a society. And, and all of that continues to build on itself and influence a political expression. And then all of that ultimately can trickle down into the life of the body of believers, our faith institutions, our churches, this family. We are in Christ he belongs to us. We belong to him. We are his body. And still we can be impacted by all of these things that are coming from the world. Now, one of the awesome things about this is that the reverse is true as well. The church can impact all of these other spaces. And it's one of the reasons why we're doing this series, because we want to talk about how, how do we position ourselves in a time like the time we're in. And so today... Um, we're, we're building off of last week. Last week, we talked about the societal conflict where we explore really through the lens of ethics. What is right and wrong? That's, that's really what's happening in the societal conflict. People have a view of what's right in their own eyes. And we talked about that needing to be, as for Christians, that, that morality, that ethic being anchored to the word of God, the truth of God. But today we're going to talk about the political conflict because the societal conflict, that ethical conversation actually impacts everything in the political world. And you'll see how that trickles down. And so there's two things that, you know, have always been a source of conflict in society, right? Man, look, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. I'm excited about Thanksgiving. I'm excited about Thanksgiving. But not because I'm going to be sitting with my family. Because you know what's going to happen when sitting with, with some of your family members, right? Some of those conversations are going to be cracked open that you don't feel like getting into. You're like, I just came for the turkey, man, right? And, and, and so what, is, what does your uncle tell you? Hey, there's two things people don't talk about publicly, right? Religion and politics. And we're going to talk about both of them today. All right. <laughs> Why, though? <laughs> Why are we going to talk about them? Well, because as a generational church, we're to disciple the next generation to help them apply a biblical lens to every aspect of life, including their religious expression, including their philosophical view on life, including their ethics, their morality, including their political views, including their relational experience. We want to disciple the church and help them know how to be more faithful to Jesus in a place that's hard. And, and then more specifically, as we're doing that, 
we don't just want to be faithful to his truth. We want to represent him well as we engage in these common societal political conflicts. We want to engage in a way that honors him, not just through truth, but through love. That's hard to do sometimes when you're dealing with truths that you might not, truth claims that you might not completely align with or agree with. To not just, well, I've got my truth, but to also say, and I love you still. And we want to be able to do both of those things. Now, politics is the process of decision-making and power dynamics within a nation. Now, that's a power-packed <laughs> uh, yeah, thing. That, I mean, that's process of decision-making and power dynamics. Yeah, go into power dynamics right now. That's what I'm trying to crack open today, power dynamics. Who has the power in a country to influence and make decisions is really what that's talking about. And who's making decisions? Now, in the U.S., there's a local, state, and federal governments that are responsible for implementing and enforcing public policies, laws, and regulations to provide order and protection for the people. That's generally the purpose of governments. The government is, in America, intended to secure the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, according to our Declaration of Independence. But it hasn't always been that way. It might not even be that way today. That was the intent. That was the heart. But sometimes that's not perfectly executed. And a lot of that has to do with the people that are in power and the, and the undergirding ethics of that society. That brings us to the role of the governed, the citizen, you, me. It's to be informed. It's to be a contributing healthy member of society. It's to obey the law of the land and it's to vote. And as Christians, it's to walk with a Christian ethic as we do all of those things. Now, this is where the conflict lies. See, in one sense, our society's ethics are influenced, as I mentioned, by the philosophies and spirit, the spirit of the world or the spirit of God. Those, those ethics are influenced by those and they influence how our laws and policies are interpreted, shaped, and applied by lawmakers and policymakers. Based on whatever ethic they have depends on how they're going to understand the things that they're employing to bring order and protection to a people. Ethics inform politics. They, ethics influence law and policy. But in another sense, not only are the laws influenced by ethics, but laws in turn then influence future ethics of a nation for generations to come. And that's a big deal because what a lot of people think is, well, don't worry about it. If, if, if laws are made that have ethical implications that don't align with my ethics, well, eventually, you know, we'll, we'll shift those things, we'll adjust those things, and, and we'll right the ship, if you will. And, and that's not always true because if policies and laws are impacting ethics in a society, it can literally change the the, the atmosphere of a people, right? Let me give you an example. So we have speed limits in our subdivision. I, I was reminded this morning that they're 25. I was creeping at 20 because it's a subdivision. And, and so, so 25 miles an hour in the subdivision, and, uh, and really those speed limits were put there because of someone's ethic, right? What's the ethic? Well, it's my ethic, the reason I was going slower than the speed limit. Because there's kids in the neighborhood, and we don't want dead kids, that's my ethic. I have an ethic for living children. <laughs> and so we put speed limits in place, right? You have a law now. It's regulating the way that we engage in a space. Well, what happens over time is 
people no longer really, not in my neighborhood, there's some crazy folks in my neighborhood, but mostly people no longer need the speed limits to know what the law is. They just know they're not supposed to be speeding because the law has been there long enough to condition us to think that way. And so now, whether they see the sign or not, they're generally creeping through the neighborhood, right? So an ethic influenced the law, but then the law reinforced the ethic. Does that make sense? Let me give you some other examples. Last week, we talked about the societal conflicts of racism and abortion. If you weren't here, you're like, wow, <laughs> I will go listen to Spotify. <laughs> okay, you guys are crazy. <laughs> yeah, we did. We talked about it. And uh, I'd like to think we talked about it well. And, and more specifically, in talking about it, I want you to know that we started and ended from a place of empathy. Because we've got to empathize with people's experiences, people that have experienced any aspect of how that societal conflict has impacted their lives. And if you want to know our stance on empathy around those two topics, you, you have to go listen to Spotify. But today I don't have time to empathize. Today I'm just going to tell you that those two things, racism and abortion, are bad ethics. That's what we concluded at the end of last week. They're bad ethics. And, and, and so they're wrong. And what that means is we have to examine what influenced the laws around those issues and then how those issues have influenced also or how those laws influenced the society. And so let's talk about racism. You guys, it's no secret, slavery is a big part of our history here in America. It's an unfortunate and, and, and deplorable shadow on our society. And, and the reality of it is, is part of the reason that we had slavery was some would say, well, hey, there was an economic need. Uh, some would say, well, that's just the way it is in the world. Others would say it's because people were racist and devalued, dehumanized a people group and said, we're going to make those people work for nothing. I lean in that category. It's, it's a bad ethic, but what happened was because people had that bad ethic, they created laws that allowed for slavery to justify what they were doing. And so... In 1861, Mississippi wrote its secession statement as all of the southern states were seceding from the Union. And in it, they justify using language that was the lawmakers at the time that was dehumanizing and racist in order to justify their economic means to prosperity. And so they said, we're seceding, created laws that, that were policies that helped them reinforce what their ethic was. But then from there, the ethic enforced the law. Now the law enforces the ethic. What the people that are in a place that are growing up where slavery is legal, they begin to say, if it's legal, it must be right. You see how that can happen? But that's not true, obviously. And, and, and so then you can see how it impacts the culture of a society even further because once abolition came, right, slavery was abolished in America, praise God. The Christian church, though it was a, you know, there's a lot of people that would say the Christian church was part of enslaving people. The Christian church was also the leaders in ab abolishing slavery. And so, so thankful that we can say that. But Jim Crow laws followed abolition. And what Jim Crow laws did was from schools to hospitals to buses and pool halls, those laws subjugated black people and kept black people separate from white people. An ethic that was existing in the society informed laws and then those laws continued to affirm the ethic in the society and people that lived in those spaces that practiced Jim Crow laws, children and, and their children's children began to think, well, if it's legal, it must be right. Is it? Of course not. 
Let, let's, let's shift gears for just a moment. Let's talk about abortion. So abortion was, in many senses, uh, it's been around for thousands of years, uh, but in another sense, in our context, in our society, it really exploded on the scene in the late 60s as the sexual liberation movement influenced sexual immorality in a people group. There was an increase in unwanted pregnancies, and they needed to have the ability to make a lot of decisions in order to, well, as we talked about, 95.7%. Generally, you know, don't get me wrong, we empathize with people's wrestling, but for uh, unreasonable views around this topic. No good reason. And so what happens? Roe versus Wade happens in 71, and the Constitution's reinterpreted through a different ethic, right? And the decision on Roe versus Wade, actually, or 73, the decision on Roe versus Wade sets a new precedent in the land. The ethic helped to set new precedent in law, but then, since then, abortion has become more and more acceptable in the land. The law impacted the ethic of the people. And, and so if it's legal, it must be right. Or no, maybe that's not true. That's not true. Just because things are legal, just because somebody's ethics says we should make a law that says this is legal does not mean it's right. Now, as I mentioned, people's ethics influence laws and policies, right? And so a society's uh, uh, impacting where the law goes, but the law and policies are impacting where society goes. And so understanding what's happening in the political world is very important because it has everything to do with laws and policy. Now, why does that matter? Because Christians should be burdened for good ethics. And so we have to evaluate our society's political process. And hopefully in our context, because we have the ability to do this, influence it, impact it with a Christian ethic. Now, the New Testament church had the same ethical conflicts like I said, abortion has been around for thousands of years. Slavery has been around for thousands of years. Same ethical conflicts, but a different political context. See, Rome was a republic until 27 BC. That's before Christ. And was governed by a body similar to our Senate. So there would have been more representation for the people. But then it became a military dictatorship that was led by the emperor. They had no voting rights and very little, if any, political influence. Things can trend that way. Go from maybe having more influence to less. Now, Jesus lived under that context. He lived under an emperor who tried to kill him. Remember that? Find all the firstborn children and in the land and murder them because he believed the Messiah had been born. The, uh, any child under two, if actually is what it was. Any child under two. Uh, then the New Testament church, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as they're getting established, they're living under the tyranny of this new emperor named Nero. And, and so Nero is an interesting character because Nero was a charismatic leader. Um, he, he would have been liked by the people. As a matter of fact, Nero engaged in the entertainment world. He would have been engaged in theatrics. He would have been engaged in the music scene. History says that. He even acted himself. Nero would have been involved in, in engaging the society in a way that seemed entertaining, enticing. Have you ever seen a politician that's just really charismatic and, and, and draws you in from their personality? It's a cult of personality, right? And, and the people liked him, and he was known not only for his charismatic, 
charismatic expression, but he was also known for impaling Christians on poles and burning them like candles along the pathway in his perfectly manicured gardens. Just because somebody has a good personality, good charisma, doesn't mean that they represent the people's ethics or that they have an interest in the church or people's lives or anything even holy. That's evil. And this was what they were experiencing as the New Testament church. Now, Paul wrote to the New Testament church that was living in that conflict, and we pick up in Romans chapter 13. You got enough background so we can finally get into the scripture, okay? And he says this to people living in that space. He says, let every person be subject or subordinated. Let them obey. Be subject to the governing authorities. For there's, catch this, no authority except from God. And those governments that exist have been instituted by God. That's hard to swallow when you think about the tyranny of a government. Let's talk about Rome specifically. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I'm the type that's tempted to resist at times. And so that, for me, that strikes holy fear in my heart. That my resistance could lead to judgment. Now, there's nuance here. We're going to get there. But for now, let's take the word at its face value. He continues in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to a good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. That's like, that's intense language. For he's the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, for me and some of my disestablishmentarian friends, <laughs> Google it later, some would say that and try to justify that submission to government is only required if the government is governing well. I've tried to make that case a lot <laughs> for 15 years, 16 years saved, 15 years wrestling with this text. I have tried to figure out how to, how to make that my theology. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I might not stop trying how <laughs> to figure it out, but I can't find a way to justify that view biblically. I can't figure it out. And so I have to take this at face value. And it says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I want to be right with God. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom uh, taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This was what the first gen church, the first century church, what they were facing, what they were having to wrestle with. A tyrannical government and Paul the apostle saying, pay them, honor them. Respect them. 
And they couldn't do anything to change it. They had no representation. It was the worst case scenario for them. I imagine it was really hard to honor those who seemed dishonorable. I imagine it was really hard to render payment when it felt like theft. I think what Paul's really getting at here, beyond all the nuance of the text, is that our submission to these governing authorities is actually less about our submission to the governing authorities and more about our submission to God. And that's what I've been learning for 15 years. That if I'm truly submitted to God, I have to submit to the things that he calls me to submit to. And so I've been wrestling with God for a long time. And this is his instruction for me. I don't know if the shoe fits for you, but if you struggle with this, then, then this is more about your relationship with God than it is about your relationship to the government. And I want to be very clear about that. Now, let's get back to America because that's not our context there. We have our own context. Some call America a democratic republic. Uh, the framers would not have used that language. Uh, the framers would have used the language constitutional republic. And that's because the founders wanted a limited democracy because democracy is actually popular vote and the tendency of humanity that has the liberty to exercise popular vote actually begins to, at times, lead to group think and therefore mob rule. And so for the guy that's surrounded by 15 people with pitchforks who's got his back against the wall, I'll bet he's not hoping that we can remain a that we can become a democratic republic. No, he wants he wants a different kind of representation in that moment. Right? Cuz his his vote it's 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 not going to it's not going to work out for him. And and so our elected representatives are accountable to the constitution, which is the supreme governmental authority in our land. And amendments to the Constitution ultimately secured our freedom to speech, to voice our ethics, and to exercise our right and responsibility to vote our beliefs. And so people, rightly so, are passionate about being involved in the political discourse because, well, we have the right to do so. Shouldn't we exercise it? And so we, the people, we vote, hoping that our representatives will create laws that reflect our ethics and hoping that they'll actually create a space, help cultivate a society where we can live by our ethics. And we certainly hope that they will not create laws that restrict us from living our ethics, right? And so in the U.S., we have freedom of religion, which is a beautiful reality. That's one of the reasons we came across the lake, across the pond, uh, in order to, to establish a place where we didn't have to have state-sponsored religion. We wanted the freedom to choose who we worship and how we worship. And so we established in the very fabric of the underpinning of our society is freedom of religion. And it's wonderful that we have it. And it's not just a right for Christians. Now, the fact is, is that everyone is adhering to a religion. Even the atheist has a religion. Their religion is secular humanism. And the religion has an ethic. And, and so we don't want a theocracy as Christians, right? But, but we also don't want policymakers leading us to a place where we begin to have to compromise on our spiritual convictions, nor do we want policies and laws that ultimately lead to a place where the society is degrading in an ethic that our kids and our grandkids will have to inherit. It's tough. Freedom of religion, yet we have our preference. 
That's the tension in our nation. And you're sitting here thinking, man, Pastor Stephen, you have told us for years now that we are not a political church. <laughs> That's right. We're not a political church. Well, why are you talking about politics and the Constitution and all of this stuff in a Sunday morning service? Well, because even though we're not a political church, we're not endorsing any party or politician. We do endorse exercising wisdom and discernment in this cultural moment, and it's our responsibility to steward the liberty that God does provide for us in the space that we're in. And we need the right view of how to steward that. Now, this is the crazy part about the whole thing, especially for you Christians. We have a trap in all of this. Because we perceive that we can influence the system, and I do use that language perceive loosely, Christians are tempted to think that we can legislate morality, that we can make laws to make us a moral people, that we can make laws to make us a, a, a place that reflects God's ethics, and that it would actually be moral. And we begin to put our hope in the law and put our hope in the political system. And that's a trap. See, we seek to create laws to fix problems that sin has created. Have, have any of you felt that way, thinking about all the legal issues that we experience, all the laws that are made, all the regulation that comes down, all the deregulation, all the, and you're like, man, I really want that to be regulated because I really want us to be a godly nation, right? Do you know that the laws that, that you might think about you know, putting in place in order to create a godly nation can't change the heart of the people that make up the nation? All it becomes is behavioral modification. And so some people start to say, well, if you just follow the Constitution, you'll be okay. Well, the Constitution is not perfect. It's more perfect than anything I've personally explored in other governing frameworks. But it's not perfect. Some would say, well, just vote in the right political party with the right candidate and you'll be okay. Well, I mean, if, if what by being okay means to you is that we might be able to improve the economy, sure. Sure, we can make some adjustments. Maybe, maybe we might be able to improve foreign policy. Sure, man, we, we could do some of those things. But does it actually create morality? Some people would say, well, we need to tear the old system down because the old system has never produced anything of worth or value. We need a new system and we'll be okay. Well, guess what? Humanity has tried just about every system with the same result and every system has had the same spectrum of hate, the same spectrum of greed, and the same spectrum of tyranny that has been outcomes. Now, some have had fewer genocides. We can celebrate that. I mean, if we do the research, it's clear that when man is involved in something, the overflow of that man's heart is going to impact it, and, and there's corruption in the heart. The sin in the heart of man is the greatest tyranny. And if we, if we ever forget that and, and get so set on the idea of what makes a government good or what makes a government bad and we, oh, that's, that's this and that's that and without first measuring what's this, what's happening here, what tyranny is happening in my own heart, and my own mind, then we become exactly what it is that, that we hate. 
And so we have to be really sober and circumspect about this. Laws can change behavior but cannot transform hearts. As we're entering into a political season, we need to remember that. Laws can transform behavior but cannot transform hearts because politics and because politics don't change hearts, we've got to start with the deeper reality of our political experience. And that all goes back to what are the ethics informing those things that are happening in our society? What is the philosophy informing those things that are happening in our society? Yes, on the Hill. Yes, in the House. Yes, locally in our mayor's offices. What are, the, what are the philosophies informing those things? What are the spirits informing those things? That's what matters at the highest level. And so, what do we do? What do we do in a, in a nation that, from my perspective, seems increasingly divided? I'm just a young buck who's only been through this a few times. I can only measure it through this very narrow window of I guess I've been paying attention to politics since I was about 10. <laughs> My dad was ranting and raving in the house. <laughs> but I was always intrigued by it. But 30 years is still a small window of time in the grand scheme of existence. And so I have a very narrow view of this whole thing. But at the same time, man, you know, I can see that this is a very tumultuous time where there's great turmoil in our land and nobody really knows what to do except for maybe begin to exercise the talking points. Well, I know what's not working, so we got to do the other thing. And I think it's more complicated than that. And so what do we do? Well, we discern what spirit is influencing your political views. Start with your views. Is the spirit of the world, that means fear, greed, hate, anxiety, worry, is that what's informing your political views? Or is it the spirit of God that's steeped in wisdom, that has vision for the kingdom of God, that, that has compassion for the people? Yes, even the people you don't agree with. We need to discern what spirit is influencing our political views, and we need to start there. Then we need to understand the philosophies that inform your politics. Where did you borrow your idea of, of what makes a good political system good? Like, where are you getting that information from? So, so there's ideas like flat collectivism. That's a big one right now. A lot of people want us to be a collectivist country where there's zero hierarchy. And it's a, it's a anyway, I'm not going to run too far down there. But that's an extreme. But then you have people that understandably would prefer a hierarchical individualism where, where you can climb the ranks of society, becoming more and more wealthy, and, 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 and it's you know chasing the dream for myself, and you, you can have that, which is also a bit of an extreme if it's misapplied. And so here we are, and there's this spectrum of extremes, and we've got to find ourselves somewhere in between. What philosophy is informing our politics? Is it God's philosophy or is it man's philosophy? Then we need to adjust our political views to a biblical ethic. I talked to a lot of people about their politics, y'all. <laughs> like, a lot of us really, we think about it explicitly through a political lens. We explicitly think red or blue. 
We explicitly think capitalism and communism. We explicitly think like in these black and white extremes, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that you don't have something to learn from those categorizations, but what I am suggesting is that we don't find those categorizations in the Bible. We find God's ethics in the Bible. And for the church to have a biblical ethic, especially in America, we got to remember that the, America is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God dwells within the heart of man. We can influence ethic. We can bring the kingdom. We pray, God, bring your kingdom. But America is not the kingdom of God. And if we start putting our views, our biblical views on America, saying America has to look like this, we can actually make an idol out of America. And there's so many people that have done that. So we've got to adjust our, our views to a biblical ethic. We're not American Christians. We're Christians that live in America. And this takes work. You have to stop listening to Fox News. You have to stop listening to CNN and MSNBC and all those trash networks, to be frank. Don't worry, all of you watch one of them, and so it covers everybody. <laughs> And we have to start listening to the Holy Spirit. We have to start listening to his word. And yeah, we're going to hear what's happening in, the, in the, the, all the rumblings and all the, 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 the gossip of the, what, you know, the, the news. But if we don't stop and say, man, is that really what's happening? Because you know, there's so much lying out there. There's so much deception out there. That's the spirit of the world, deceiving the people manipulating, propagandizing, literally misleading. It's witchcraft, misleading the people. The prince of the power of the air uses those voices to communicate things to steer us away from the hope that we find in the gospel. I think I lost everybody. We have to exercise our right and responsibility to voice and vote our beliefs. You do have a voice. God's given you a voice. You do have a perspective. God's given that to you. If you've submitted it to him and have done the hard work of making sure it's biblical, then you have a voice that God wants to use. We want to steward that voice to be an influence in our society. We have the ability to influence our society. It would be poor stewardship of us if we didn't try to do that. We want to be light in a dark place. And it does seem increasingly dark. And I'm not just talking about since this most recent administration, to be clear, the one before, the one before, the one before, the one before. I have seen darkness as long as I can remember in every administration. And, and so we want to bring light to a dark place. We need to steward our call to, to be used by God, maybe even in this space. You know, in, in, in the Wiggins location, we have two men. One's a black guy, one's a white guy. They've known each other for 10 years. They, they do life and church together, and they're both running for the same office, sheriff. One is a Republican, conservative. The other was Democrat, went independent. And, and, and so they're in two different camps, if you will, two different ethnicities, if you will, one faith, one relationship, unity in the spirit, loving each other along the way, not getting into the mix of dragging each other through the dirt just to just to build their own platform. They're honoring one another. It's beautiful. They're responding to the call of God on their life to impact and influence the society they're in. And some of you might even feel called to be a voice. You know, I think the church has relegated 
this space, unfortunately, too much to extreme views. If someone in here like feels a burden or a call to be engaged in the political process, man, let me know. I want to pray for you. I want, I want to come alongside of you. I want to, I want to walk with you. I want to help you discern what a, a biblical ethic is in your, in your political experience so that you can actually be a kingdom representative in whatever space God gives you influence. And then vote. And if it doesn't work, <laughs> it is what it is. It didn't work in Rome, and it might not always work here. I don't know. But what I do know is at least you try. And you do the best you can with the system you got, and then you trust God. That's it. It's a, it's a matter of faith. We engage the process in the best way we know how, as faithfully as we know how, with the gospel of grace, and we let our faith do the rest. What else do we do? Submit to governing authorities. I told you already, I see tyranny in leaders' policies everywhere I look. There's tyranny. It's informed by sin. It's informed by bad ethics. It's informed by bad decision-making. Not just in today's government. In every government I have, been, I have measured since I had the ability to measure, there were things I could critique. There were things that were un, un glorifying the God and I'm still called to submit. Romans 13, man, it was one of the first things in the first year of my salvation. I'm sorry, Valerie, this is taking way longer than I thought it was going to. She's got these keys up here. I should have had you come up way later, huh? You're doing great though. Thank you. Can we appreciate Valerie? <laughs> it's like the whole thing is an altar call. Just, just, just play through the whole sermon. Like, this, if there was a sermon that needed it, this was the one. Like, we need keys the whole time, right? <laughs> anyway. I was doing something illegal in the first year of my salvation. I didn't think it was illegal because the Constitution technically says it's not illegal. But other things eventually regulated it to become where it was illegal, especially in the state that I was visiting. And, and a brother, a faithful brother came and, and, and said to me, why do you disregard this, Romans 13? He said, do you take the Bible as God's truth? Do you believe what God says? I said, yeah, I do. Of course I do. Well, why don't you accept this? I said, well, because I don't like it. <laughs> he said, would you do me a favor and just try? Ask the Lord to help you believe this. And I prayed a prayer, not with him there later, I said, God, if that brother's right and I'm supposed to believe this and this wasn't just the context for that church in Rome, I'm supposed to believe this for today. God, will you help me to believe it? And can I tell you, immediately God gave me faith to believe it. I'm talking about a, like a gift of grace fell on me to believe this scripture. I wrestle with it still. I'm not saying I don't, but I still believe it. And that anchors me to it. And not only that, but as I chose to believe the hardest text in the scripture for me to believe, I was able to believe God for everything else in such a profound way. It built my faith up in the highest way. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with this scripture, man, would you just try praying and ask God to help you believe this? He's calling us to submit. That being said, before we submit, he calls us to obey him. Obey God before any political leader. This is not about resisting, necessarily. Unless that resisting is only because they won't let you do what it is that God has explicitly commanded you to do. So in Romans or uh, Acts, Peter and John 
defied the law of the land in order to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin. That's worth resisting. If they ever tell me I can't preach something from this pulpit, I will resist. And you should too. If you're going to be an ambassador for the kingdom. Now we want to walk in wisdom. We want to walk in, in, in peace. We want to be harmless as doves and sly as serpents. In doing that, we don't want to throw ourselves on the altar for the, the purpose of just being loud and proud. But at the end of the day, if they tell me I can't tell the truth, especially around God's ethic, I have to. I'm commanded to. And so, so obey God before any political leader. The first century Christians always lifted God over the emperor. They always said first that Jesus is Lord. And that was treason. Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. And if anyone tries to take that confession from you, it's worth dying for. And people, brothers and sisters, in North Korea, in China, in many countries with Sharia law, they have and are and will continue to die because they don't have the same liberty that we have. And so we should pray that we don't ever get faced with that kind of decision. But if we were faced with that kind of decision, never, ever, ever be complicit in not saying Jesus is Lord when you're told not to. Because that is the confession of your faith. And last, it's a spiritual battle. And so we need to pray. You can vote. You can have your opinions. I'm opinionated. I got opinions. You, you, could, you could have a vision even. You could feel called to it. You could have all the best antics and antidotes and solutions and all of that. You can have it all. But at the end of the day, you can go forward in your own might instead of the power of God. It's a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. The politics, it's surface stuff. There's something much deeper happening here. And that's why Paul writes to Timothy as a church leader. He says, first of all, in other words, make this your priority. First of all, I urge that supplications, that supplies would be, needed supplies would be provided for, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. That's your politicians. You guys praying for your president? Are you praying for your VP? Are you praying for the secretaries? Are you praying? I don't always pray. But we are called to be a people who pray for those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life because that's all we want, right? I just want to live my life. I just, I just want to chill. Stop getting all up in my business. I'm trying to grow some food. Raise a chicken or two, you know what I'm saying? But am I praying for those who are in power? That we can lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in any way, in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. I love how Paul ends this section with the point is not to get what you want or create the perfect atmosphere. The point is salvation and the knowledge of God being exalted above every other knowledge. That's the point. And so in this room today, he wants salvation to come to our hearts. In this room today, he wants the knowledge of God to be exalted above our knowledge of the political world, above our opinions, above our views, above our philosophies. He wants his knowledge to be exalted above it all, that the name of King Jesus, the one who is highly exalted, 
would be lifted above every other name in our own lives first.